Jesus, please speak through me, and let me get this message out in a way that's easily understood. Um, and Father, I just pray that you remove any distractions, and Lord, definitely in my mind, and definitely any distraction I can be to anyone, and you'd have us hear exactly what we want to hear. Shock us, Lord, to hear something we didn't um, think we were going to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're taking the... Is my wallet still on me, Mariah? I don't know. Like, what was that? So we are taking the Lord's uh, Supper today. Every six weeks, we take the Lord's Supper. And I have this constant thought in the back of my mind when it comes to Lord's Supper that we do not ever make this something that is just a, a ritual. You know, it just becomes a ritual, a ritual. And um, in particular, there is a, there's a piece about Lord's Supper that I didn't get for years. It was always, it, uh, it, was, it was these two words. And if, did you ever grow up in a Presbyterian church or Episcopalian? It would say, remember me. Do you remember that on a banner? Remember me. And on the table. And, we, and, uh, and so in this, I kept thinking, what, what does that mean, remember me? What does it mean? And in my mind, I always thought I was doing God a service by taking the cup, taking the bread, and remembering them. Almost as if he was saying, look, just remember me because I don't want to be forgotten. And that's not the case at all. Actually, when Jesus is saying, I want you to remember me, he's saying this so that you remember the amazing power that he is there to give you. And that power is a power that does not make sense on a cross he's about to hang on. Now, you're probably thinking, this is Christmas. Why would I talk about the cross? I wanted to talk about Christmas. Shale even said, bring up a Christmas message. And I just kept going back to these verses. And so I, here I am giving them practically like an Easter message right on, the, right on the eve of Christmas. But I hope it makes sense. But by the time the, the cracker and the, the, the cup come around, that you totally understand and get a better picture of what this means. Dad, Tell my dad to be quiet in the back. Good grief. He can't hear from here, but back there he can hear everything. So anyway, um, life. Anyway, uh, so here we are. Let's pick up First Peter. He hits on every woman that walks in, my dad. So anyway, I don't know. So sorry, Karen. But uh, anyway, first, uh, verse 13, chapter 2. My poor mom. She would, uh, here it is. Ready? Okay, Peter, by the way, is writing to a group of Jewish believers, Jewish people who believe in Jesus, who've been scattered. And they're living in other countries, Galatia, and there's some other places, and they're living in these places. And they're discouraged. Because they have just been, uh, you know, they've been told they're going to have this life of victory. They, they, they've been told that, you know, this great God is, is finally come forth in a New Testament fashion. Everything's going to be great. And then here they are selling themselves off as slaves, having to become slaves for non-Jews. So typically what happens, if, I mean, if you ever look around at countries like you go to New York or even go to Ybor City where immigrants came over, they assimilated together. So if you go to Ybor and you see the, the Cuban club, the Spanish club, the Italian club, everybody with a common tongue circled around each other. Well, it's nothing unusual if you go to 
um, larger cities, other parts of the world. Jews wanted to move over and be with other Jews in different countries because they knew the food, they knew the culture. Well, the problem was these other Jews weren't taking them in. Why? Because these were Christ-believing Jews. They thought they were nuts. And they're like, no, get away. So these people now have no sense of community, no neighbors, and now they're having to sell themselves into slavery. They go to work for um, non-Jewish entities. And so Peter is getting word they're discouraged. They're discouraged because they have totally had to submit. And Peter is about to say, submission is not a bad thing. So uh, chapter two of first Peter, verse 13. So in his letter to them, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, let me stop here for a second. Typically, you all know, if you're visiting here, when we are in a book, and we covered First and Second Samuel for almost a year, when we are in a book of the Bible, we walk verse by verse and teach. Sometimes we'll walk through a few verses, sometimes one, but we teach verse by verse. I'm not doing that in this particular case. I want to but I want to get to the crux of this message. But I want you to grasp the example Peter is giving about the cross. So verse 20, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it that you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for, for it, you endure. But this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. Those four words, by the way, um, are big. A little bit of theology here. There are some people who will read into that, Muslims, and who will say, oh, Jesus is a good guy. If you've ever been to some um, eclectic group of, of, of religions, at a, like at a, a, prayer, a prayer breakfast or something, you'll see people in, who are from other faiths, but... A lot of times you'll hear a Muslim uh, say, well, you know, yeah, Jesus was a great prophet. He's the, I mean, you're like confused. You think this guy's getting saved just by the way he's talking. And actually what they're, what they're saying is they'll say Jesus was a great example. And so they get that out of verses like this. They say he was an example. Jesus was not an example. Jesus was a substitute for our sin and death and a payment for that. Jesus let, gave us an example, but he was not an example. Is everybody okay with that? So, all right, there's... Um, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd. And by the way, they got this word. 
overseer of your souls. Any slave would have understood what it meant to have an overseer. He said the overseer of your souls is who, who you need to return to. Now, we are going to take communion at the end. So we, some call it communion. I still call it communion. Lord's table, some of you call that. Some of you call it Lord's Supper. And what I want you to do is grasp a picture of Jesus maybe a little differently when we go to take these elements. I want you to think of this. When Jesus says, remember me, at that dinner, before Jesus is arrested, before he goes to the garden and is arrested, he, when he says, I want you to remember me, he is showing a cup. This cup is very profound. They would have known what this cup meant. He would have said, I want you to drink out of this cup with me. I will not drink this cup again until I return. And in our minds, we're thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, back then, if you would have proposed, let's say, John, you would have proposed to Morgan, you would have gone to go see, you know, Ron and Sandy, and you would have proposed, and you would have, you would have gone up to them, and you would have said, hey, I'm going to, I don't know, what, three goats, two lamb, whatever, anyway, whatever you bought. And you would have said, here, I'm proposing to Morgan. And you would have met with Ron. Ron would have sat down with you. You would have had a cup. You all would have drank from that cup as, a, under, as an agreement, understanding. And then you'd have left. And you'd have gone home. And you'd have gone home and you'd start building a room onto your home to prepare for marriage. Now when it's time to marry, it's time to get ready to marry, you are not going to drink from that cup until you are about to get right at the marriage ceremony. So the idea that when Jesus says, I'm, when I return, we will share in that cup together is very profound. But that cup Jesus is about to walk away from is also going to be referred to as a cup of suffering because he knows what he has to do to suffer. Jesus knows he's going to be going to this cross. And so I wrote down a few, I think there's six or seven lessons that we can learn from Jesus on this cross. They're not alliterated. They do not match. I stink at writing points, which is why I like teaching through scripture. Bear with me. But here it is. Lesson number one, forgive others. Now, some of these are going to come off real Sunday schoolish. Don't. Don't let that happen. Don't get there because I want you to see the heart of Jesus forgiving people. I want us to see how sometimes we're selective, uh, selective forgivers. Here it is. Look at uh, Luke 23, 34. Here's an example I brought from that. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So, I want you to imagine this. Jesus' birth that we're going to celebrate at Christmas. At the stable, this, was the, this would only foreshadowed, his birth in a stable would only foreshadow the treatment he would receive from mankind throughout his entire life. Think about that. In that stable, the treatment he would receive from Herod from executing any kid under a certain age, any baby, would, that would be the driving force for the persecution he's going to endure his entire life. Constantly aware that his only way to leave this earth is going to be in absolute agony and pain. So the vile treachery that, that existed in Herod, it only um, came to an Everest in its totality at the cross. Uh, the first thing Jesus says on the cross is he prays. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. 
the very first thing Jesus is doing on this cross is to say, Father, forgive them. These men who were committing this crime had no idea who they were trying to kill. None. Jesus knew that they had no idea who they were trying to kill. Jesus also knew they had no idea who he was. They hadn't, he, he looked at them and knew that these men had no earthly idea, so he just had this heart of forgiveness. Meanwhile, there's so much going on. Up to this point, there's been an incredible walk to the cross, an incredible march, carrying the cross, watching the cross go up, getting pierced through the ulna nerves while the others are being tied down, being put up, about the, wanting to suffocate on your own weight, but the cruelty of putting a board out and, and, and strapping down the feet so you don't suffocate, so you can get this excruciating pain, which is the Latin word from out of the cross where it comes from, and he's suffering through all this. And what is he doing? Father, forgive him. Um, underline in everything in which he said, he gave them the benefit of the doubt that they did not know who they were dealing with. Jesus was painfully aware of their depravity. And that is the best news you and I could probably get today. So for all the times you've ever wondered, God, can you just, are you over me and my temptation? Are you over me and my depravity? God is fully aware of every bit of who you are and forgives you at this very moment. So at this point, Jesus' lesson to us is this, I'm going to, I'm going to forgive. But you see this, here, here's a thought, you ready? Forgiveness is our greatest gift. But forgiveness is our greatest need. Without the ability to forgive other people, without the ability to engage in forgiveness, here's what's going to, and I'm not just talking about forgetting them, there's a big difference. And I'm not talking about because you forgive somebody, you have to restore a right relationship and communion with them. I'm not talking about that. That could be totally unhealthy. But the forgiveness that exists in the heart that you have is the restorative power to coming closer and closer in your relationship to who Jesus is. Because he is a forgiving God. You could, uh, C.S. Lewis was asked one time, what's the one word that would describe God from every other God? And he said, grace. You cannot have grace without forgiveness. And so in this forgiveness is this, you and I having the ability to forgive, but do we exercise that? Um, you and I have a basis of reference for forgiveness. They didn't then. People didn't forgive each other. You, as a matter of fact, you died in your sin. That's what you did. If you were, you had better hope and better pray that you, that you were connected to a powerful God who somehow liked you and would tolerate you and take you into his kingdom. And if not, you're toast. And so this whole idea of forgiveness that Jesus was preaching, I want you to forgive him. Going up to religious leaders who are about to stone to death this woman and saying, stop, you need to be forgiven because you've been forgiven. This was all new. And now in the woes of death, the things that people say at death when they do not exaggerate, and they are very real, is this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, at this point, is looking out for these men. God, don't, please, please forgive them. Because he knows the pain in which Jesus, or, or, or God is going through. There's a, a series called Mind of Christ. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, it was like 30 years ago, I think. I mean, it was a phenomenal writing 
where they get to a place and they talk about something. It's called the abeyance of the Trinity. And I, I'm like, what does that mean? It means this, that the Trinity always worked together to compliment each other. They always bragged on each other. The Father bragged on the Son. The Son bragged on the Holy Spirit. That's all they did. And at the cross, at the crucifixion, the Trinity actually obeyed itself. The Father and the Holy Spirit backed away and allowed the cross to go on, allowed the execution to go on. And at this moment, Jesus is on a cross dealing with his own pain and yet trying and, and saying, I forgive you guys. And he's saying this, God, Father, I'm begging you, forgive them. I'm begging you, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because Jesus knows how much his father loves them. As a matter of fact, um, one of the early martyrs of the church, Stephen, who's stoned to death, if you look in Acts chapter 7, 60, says, and just before he died, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Again, keep in mind, no point of reference until Jesus about forgiveness. You and I have a solid point of reference. Technology, a lot of you grew up with technology, no point of reference. I mean, you, you, you what? And who buys encyclopedias anymore, right? You wouldn't, do they even make them anymore? You wouldn't. But I remember when that was a big deal. My, um, my mom and my aunt grew up really poor and they, uh, their dad made payments every month on a book called the Lincoln Library of Knowledge. It's this big. And she said, every answer in all of life was in that book. There wasn't, we would just make up a word, go, there it was. And, you know, to think we have a basis of reference of knowledge. We have a basis of reference of so many things. They had no basis of reference of forgiving. If you just killed the person if they were bad to you, or you took other lives, that's what you did. You took from them. You had to survive. So this whole area of forgiveness was new. I was talking to somebody the other day. They said that they had, uh, they were eight years old. This, this guy was only 27, so keep in mind. He's eight years old. He goes to a thrift shop, buys a CD. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, CD. He buys a CD. He's eight, with an allowance. He gets it. He goes, whoa. He rides to school with his dad. He can't wait for his dad to hear this new band. He says, dad, you got to hear this new band I'm going to listen to. He goes, yeah, what is it? He throws it in. It's called, they're called the Beatles. He's like, really? He goes, yeah, they're incredible. He, he's like, wow, this is amazing. He's like, yeah, this is, it's just, uh, yeah, it's incredible. And, um, and he's like, uh, yeah, they got this drummer. His name's Ringo. And dad's like, really? What are some other music? I don't know. I'll try to find some other music. Well, anyway, eventually the kid goes to his dad and like, you knew about the band. He goes, yeah, I kind of grew up under it. He says, why didn't you tell me? Because I enjoyed it. He said the, po- the kid had no point of reference of knowing what his dad knew. You and I are drawn by God in a childlike faith to, when we have a point of reference of like, I never thought God could forgive me that much. And he smiled and he's like, yeah, I do. And I don't know why you can't grasp that. And so Jesus, given an example on a cross of dying on a cross where he says these things, they're powerful. But watch the next lesson, lesson two. Reach out to others. And again, these, the whole time I'm putting these up here, I'm thinking it may sound so like a, much like a no-brainer, really, like, Forgive others, reach out to others. I mean, if you write this down in a note, you should go home in a year, look at him like, who was this clown, right? I mean, he's one of the more original of this. But think about this. If you really do think about these words, 
the practicality and the practice of these words are powerful. Reach out to others. And maybe, oh yeah, so I'll reach out, I'll make a casserole or I'll do this or I'll take somebody something when they're hurting. But in death, would you think of reaching out to other people? Jesus did. Look at Luke 23, verse 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is bringing salvation to a soul that religion at that point thought was damned for the rest of, of eternity. And Jesus is bringing him salvation. He's hang, I want you to think this. Jesus is hanging on a cross. Eradicate your mind from any point of reference, Sunday school, flannel graph, whatever. I want you to picture this. Jesus is hanging on a cross. The venomous hate of his prosecutors are still ringing in his ear. He's bearing the punishment of all the world's sins throughout all the ages that have been, the age that is now and the age that has come, all the weight of all that responsibility, remembering the conversation of Satan coming up to him on the earth and going, they're not gonna get it. I know these people. I know who they are. They won't understand. All of this in the mind, the abeyance of the Father, the abeyance of the Holy Spirit, meanwhile, looks at a man who in the book of Matthew earlier jumped in on the mocking of Jesus and now looks at him and says, you are going to be with me in paradise. What kind of a father we serve that thinks of others at a moment like that? But I also want you to think this. If I had a sub point to this lesson, it'd be, what was it that drew this man to God, to Jesus? What was it? I mean, think about this. There was no outward sign of the Christ. There was, he looked like a victim. He was beaten beyond recognition. His, uh, the very fact that he was dying meant he'd been totally rejected. At this moment, there was no one clamoring, um, God, you're, you're, you're our forever one. You're our Messiah. There was no John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God and tens of thousands of people dropping down their knees. There are no crowds, no fame, no courageous Peter pulling out a sword to take off an ear of someone. He was weak. He was in disgrace. He was in a, a position of extreme um, shame. There had been no earthquake. No darkness had fallen. No centurion dropping to his knees saying, you are the son of God. The most unfavorable and unconvincing circumstances ever existed for a man to be drawn to someone to call him God and what did it? Everything you could think of to keep someone from believing in a muddled physical body of somebody saying, I want to go where you go, what was it? And it goes to prove there is nothing that can be offered of human flattery, nothing can be offered of human creativity that remotely comes close to the power and the sovereignty of God to draw people in. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. In the most amazing conversation between what looks like nothing, no fancy church, no fancy clothing, nothing. A man begging for the company. 
And so what happens is so many people are jaded because what do we say? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only path to, to come to heaven. But what do we do as a church? We cloak him, we dress him, we do everything but put lipstick on to say, you have to come to the church first. You have to come to this pattern first. And lo and behold, God help us if, if people plot themselves down to a self-righteous religious person in a church anywhere and they would all of a sudden feel the weight, the burden of never ever, ever being able to see Jesus for who he is. We have messed it up so many times by putting apologies on Jesus, by putting cloaks of disguise around him, of saying, well, if you come here, you should vote this way anyway. How many times have we stood in front of the raw picture of Christ and his redemption and his forgiveness and said, no, 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 look at me. This is why it's important when we work with other churches to understand something. They see Jesus in a way that we might not. When we help out a food bank yesterday, they worship completely differently. They, they worship the Son of God. They worship Christ. They worship the Messiah. Very charismatic. But don't ever go in there and tell them they can't see Jesus for who he is, because they do. And then there's other churches that we would call high church. I mean, this is a big church. These are churches that are very rigid and, you know, traditional and ritualistic. They see the majesty of a great God. They see Jesus as they do. And so when we gather together, when you get that cup in a little bit, you are going to have a chance where Jesus is going to whisper in your soul, remember me. Don't remember anything else. Me. And so that lesson that Jesus thinks of others is, is remarkable. How about this one? Um, he meets the needs of others. He remembers others. He meets the needs of others. What do I mean by that? John 19, in their picture of the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. A lot of people have to ask this question. If you're ever walking through someone, discipling someone, why, why did he not say his mom? Actually, he stopped calling her mom at Cana. Do you remember with the wedding at Cana? Mary comes up to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. Please, would you make some more wine? And I love that picture because, folks, if you were going to invent a religion, I could give you a thousand one ways in Scripture that they, didn't, they would never have used. That one being one where he looks at her and he says, woman, calls her woman at the moment, my time has not come. At that moment, you're thinking the story could have ended. Prodding mom comes up, Jesus, come on. You know you've shown me some stuff at home. I've seen what you're capable of doing. Make the water wine. Come on, you got this. He looks at her, definitively shuts her down. Woman, my time has not yet come. But what does he do? Bows to the wishes of a Jewish prodding mom. Okay, then you got it. That's our God. That is why there is excitement in prayer because God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything that's going on and I cannot understand how the activity of prayer works, but it works. It works. And by the way, you ever get me to pray? I'm never gonna pray 
I mean, if you're having a heart attack, I am, Ray, you dropped in a heart. I'm not going to pray. Pray, Lord, God's will. On me. No, I'm praying, get the heart beaten. Can't get the defibrillator, but Lord, get the heart beating. Lord, heal it. Get, I'm going to be praying specifically for who you are. That's how we're taught to pray. Don't give a God a way out. He doesn't need a way out. He had a way out on this cross. He had a total way out. As a matter of fact, when Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, he looked at Peter. He said, Peter, what are you doing? I could summon a legion, which we know in our earthly terms, 72,000 angels. It's, it's 72,000 angels I could summon right here, right now. The sight of one angel, every time in scripture, one, one, dropped everybody to their knees and the angel had to sit there and their first words every time was, uh, stop being afraid, stop being afraid. Imagine 72,000, that power, I could do this. Don't. Lesson four. Come to grips with the seriousness of your purpose. Um, Matthew 27, verse 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sakvathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What if I were to ask you this question? I was, no, I was somebody who was not a believer. I'd walk up to you and I would say, Ian, did you not tell me that God would never forsake me? That God will always be there for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, but what, what I did last night, no, God's not going to leave you. Then how do you answer that verse? How would God abandon his son at his most hurtful time? Why would that happen? See, Jesus did not come here just to robotically go to a cross to die for our sin. Jesus came here to be an example and here it is, ready? To identify with us. The very fact that Jesus cries is incredible comfort to me. I mean, I wouldn't want a God that was cold and callous and said, I gave you life, therefore I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and allow you to exist. No, I want a God that is the God that we have that says this, I want to give you life so that you can live. And I want to give you life because I love you. We keep hearing these terms, I love you, but point of reference, keep going back to people who could never fathom a God that would show love, ever, ever. So Jesus, he, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about that cup. He actually cries out, God, why would you take this cup away? Take it away. Sure, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. The antinomy that comes together that says, uh, yes, in this world, 100% truth, and yes, in this world, 100% truth. And here he is in this midst saying, God, can you take this cup? Why have you left me? He's not saying, God, I knew the plan. And I understand it. He is yelling out, why have you left? If Jesus can have the fortitude, the allowance, and, are you ready for this? The example to pray that way, that means you can too. 
That means when it comes time to praying, some of the most effective prayers you could do is simply cry out to God and go, God, why would you let this happen to me? Why am I dealing in disbelief? Why am I dealing in doubt? Why am I dealing in discouragement? Why do I not feel like praying anymore, God? Why do I not understand anything when I try to read scripture? Why do I feel like I'm the fake and everybody's got a script? Why is it? There could be the most beautiful picture of a prayer you've ever prayed. Because when that cup comes before you, it says this, remember me, remember me. I'm the one who said, God, why have you forsaken me? I'm the one that, that, that forgave others. And if, if they were killing me, I could forgive you too. I'm the one that even though I was weary, hungry, tired, I depended on you. You know, Jesus, every, t- every time he was hungry, he didn't have a problem saying he was hungry. When he said, I had nothing to wear, you he was clothed by others. And, and then when he was discouraged, it was others that he looked to. And in this case, it shows that he depended on others. Lesson five, depend on others. What's harder than you taking food and helping people is you receiving food from other, or help from other people. Receiving help, receiving somebody just to come by and take you to a doctor's appointment. Somebody to come by and take you to a place in the scripture where you need to go. Allowing that to happen. What do I mean by this? Watch this. John 19, 8. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Jesus, at this point, was covering up no words. When you feel forsaken, that means this, you are abandoned. You are desolate and you are lonely. There is no religion left in talk. There is no religious banter. It's pure, unadulterated, dying flesh. And in the midst of it is Christ that cannot be contained. That even a thief looks over and says, you've got to be him. And in just a moment, an earthquake is going to happen and darkness is going to fall. The centurion is going to drop to his knees. And all of a sudden, they're, they're, they're just going to drag, immediately kill him, or they want to kill him, but he gives his own body. Take the body away. And then the body is going to rise again. But in that moment, of what we call being real is comforting. Again, if you were going to invent a religion, you would never give a weak picture of a, of a God or a deity to anyone, especially in that day and time. Our point of reference is a loving, forgiving Jesus. Most of us grew up in America. That's what we experience. They had no experience of that. If we had been recording this, I would have said, Ray, whatever you do, don't don't say what he said. Don't say that he felt abandoned. He was questioning his own dad. Why? Don't, Ray, whatever you do, don't put that in there. All of it's been recorded. And Jesus comes back to say, not only was it recorded, it was done as an example to you because I want you to do something. In the midst of your depravity, in the midst of your questioning, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your discouragement, in the midst of everything that brings you into a church and makes you feel like my marriage is falling, I'm failing, I don't know what's going on, I don't know where my family's happening. Remember me. Remember me. 
It goes on to lesson six, finish what you start. And what he did was finished exactly what he started. When he gets to a place of understanding it's about to come to a close, he is very quickly about to commit his life over. And he's about to simply say, it is finished. I did a funeral for Candy Anderson. Anybody remember her from Idlewild years ago? In her 40s. Um, Wes, how many kids do they have? Like seven, five? Seven, seem like a big family anyway. You got, and uh, I know uh, taught a lot of them in third grade Sunday school. Candy was one of our teachers. Remember Ron and Sandy? Was she there when you were there? She was teaching with us in college age. Phenomenal. I mean, this woman was amazing. She's oozed love and compassion. And, you know, one day she just comes up and she says, you won't believe this. I have cancer. I'm like, what? I said, yeah. I have ca- I never thought I would say that. And I'm like, well, we got to beat it. We got to do whatever. And she went to some treatment programs within a month. We're in a room on life support. They're taking her off life support and she's, she just won't pass. And we're all gathered. Tracy, her husband, is there. The kids are there. And finally, one of her friends comes over, grabs her hand, and says something so profound. She says, Candy, you have left nothing undone here. You can go. And at that moment, began a slow fade, and within no more than a couple minutes, at the most, maybe in a minute, she passed. And in preaching her funeral, I remember those words, and they resonated. Because it's one thing for your life to end. It's another thing for your life to have been completed. And that woman who we would have thought was taken at way too young of an age left nothing undone. Can that be said of any of us? And so when Jesus at this point simply says, it is finished, it is over. Everything he did was deliberate. Everything, including, are you ready for this? The deliberate behavior to say, it's okay to be real. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be discouraged. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to wonder when the answer is ever going to come. It's okay to continually have this sense of, of pain. It's okay. Because if he can live it, if he can thrive in it, if he can survive it, if he can preach it from a cross, you and I can receive it. Which is why when the cup comes and you stare at it and you look at it, You simply hear these words, remember me. I've still come to rescue you the way I did everything on the cross. I haven't forgotten. And lastly, sounds again so cliche, but here it is. Commit yourself to God. Jesus, when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death. What do you mean? What would a perfect death be? A soldier would have a different view of a death. 
a Messiah came to die in a relationship with you and I to identify with us and dies in a manner that says this, I am not only a Messiah that has paved the path, I am a Messiah that will walk with you in every emotion, in every wonder, in every dark place you've ever had. A Messiah that you can come to without any shame or any fear. But you see, here's what keeps us from living dependently on God and committing him. Pride. And from finishing the race and from doing it correctly, laziness. At the end of the day, we're lazy. At the end of the day, we're prideful. At the end of the day, never let a preacher beat you up for it. Because if God can work with people piercing his side and preaching to a man who's dying on a cross, he can deal with prideful, lazy believers. He can. Because you see, here's what's going on. Now, here's where I'm going to land the plane here. Because the relationship is between you and he. That when the cup comes, it doesn't say, remember your church. It doesn't say, think about the person next to you. It says, remember me. Because with, with me, I'm going to help you in your laziness. I'm going to help you in your pride. I'm going to help you in your discouragement. I'm going to help you deal with the person to the right and to the left. I'm going to help you forgive others when you don't feel like forgiving because I have been there and I know what it feels like. And there's no greater teacher than the teacher by example. And that's who I am as your Christ. Found an old book in my library. And that's a wonder, right? An old book in my library. And written by a British pastor, or I don't know, it doesn't sound British pastor, British theologian, right? It sounds better. It says, here it is. You call me master, and you obey me not. You call me light, and you see me not. You call me wise, and follow me not. You call me life, but you desire me not. You call me fair, but love me not. You call me rich, but you ask me not. You call me eternal, and then you seek me not. You call me noble, but you serve me not. You call me mighty, but you honor me not. As we get ready for the elements, I can say this. In whatever we have called him, whatever we, ha whatever we have done to picture Jesus, look at it freshly today. So when the cup comes to you and the bread, and you're going to get both. You're going to get the bread given to you as a, as a symbol of his broken body and a cup as the blood poured over our sins. I want you to do this. I'm going to give you a minute or so. I just want you to focus on this. Remember me. Remember him and what he's doing in your life and has done in your life and will continue to do in your life. You have never had no better example you have no better path that's been paved by him. I'm going to take that as they're passing those out. Take that moment and we'll just um, have that moment for you to pray. How's that?
pray. Lord, thanks for a church that allows us to have this kind of message on the eve of Christmas. Lord, thank you, Father, for we can grab a greater picture of who you are when we just remove everyone but ourselves. And Lord, in the midst of what you went through and hanging that cross, in the midst of bearing the weight of the world's sins, in the agony of the cross itself, in the midst of all your pain, you showed compassion. Lord, you showed us an example. And you showed us specifically there's nothing that hinders us from approaching you. Father, for all the times we felt like we couldn't approach you because we hurt you, you gave us an example that that's not true. Father, for all the times that we couldn't approach you because we felt like we abandoned you, Father, that's not true. Father, thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you that you made it easy. Thank you that you made yourself approachable. Father, thank you that you cause us to pause for a moment and remember no one else but you. Go ahead and take those elements now. Lord, thank you for the cup of life you've given us. The very cup that you've, um, that so many times, the Lord, that became very heavy for you. Father, a cup that we wish to return one day to call us by name. Father, for that cup, until then, we remember you. Lord, thank you again for those who are here. Lord, for those who might not know you as their Savior, as their Messiah, that they were ones who look at you, Father, as, as, as one who they've never had a relationship Lord, I pray that they come talk to uh, one of our leaders or just even the best minister, and that would be the one that brought them here today. They would ask them that question. How is it that I can have that relationship with you, Lord? Father, for those of us who have walked with you, Father, thank you for the pause, the time that we took this morning to say thank you. Thank you for making forgiveness a whole lot easier. Thank you, Father, for making approaching the cross a whole lot easier by your example. You're an example all the way to the end. And for that, Lord, we thank you. Lord, you are a substitute for all of our sins and the redeemer of our souls. For that, Father, we say thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you Christmas Eve. Amen. Would you stand?